0: Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. I have been asked multiple times to speak on the topic of engagement. I've been asked to talk about how to build it, how to train it, what it is, how to recognize it. All of these questions come in on a fairly regular basis. I even refer to engagement as kind of a prerequisite skill for so many of the other things that I provide in my programs. So first things first, let's define it. What in the heck is it? When dog trainers are talking about it, they are talking about kind of seeing the human as relevant. They are talking about attention being paid to the human. I'm going to define it as the dog seeking reinforcement from the human instead of elsewhere. So what does that look like? To me, it looks like you enter a space and the dog immediately orients their attention to you. They offer you eye contact. They are waiting for information from you. They're waiting for reinforcement from you. The dog knows that you are where the information and the reinforcement are gonna be found. That paying attention to you is what's gonna pay off for them. I do like to train this as a default response. I would be lying if I said that my dogs defaulted to this in every single environment that they were ever put in. But in general, it is what I want to see in the face of an environment that I would call novel to them. So for instance, they know that a trailhead is not where we're going to train. And so they might not instantly offer this exact kind of engagement at at a trailhead or in a trailhead parking lot. They offer other kinds of engagement. They're not just dragging me towards the trail because that's not something I reinforce, But that's different from sometimes I teach on location and I might be in a training building that my dogs have never been in. And the second I bring them in, they recognize it as a training type of space and they offer me engagement instantly. And a really important piece for me is that this engagement is offered, it is unprompted. The cue is simply that we have offered a novel space And I'm here and you're here. That cues the dog to direct their engagement towards me. I am not nagging at them. I am not asking them if they want to play a game. I am not pushing them to pay attention. It is very important to me that this is not something that I have to work to elicit. So we've talked about what it is. We've talked about what it looks like. Let's next talk about how to wreck it. (laughs) I'm going to go through the ways that people screw this up because I think it's really important to do. If we don't talk about the ways that people screw this up, you might try to follow my instruction and still screw it up because you're still doing these other things that come intuitively to you. The number one way that people mess this up is they are trying to train a dog when they don't have it. So they don't recognize it as a core prerequisite skill and they try to train the dog even though they don't have the engagement. So they enter the space, they immediately start to prompt and bother the dog and fuss with the dog and show the dog reinforcers to make the engagement happen. So they're faking the engagement And if you're faking it, you will never have the real thing happen. So attempting to fumble through a training session, manufacturing the engagement by overwhelming your dog with reinforcers is one of the biggest ways that you will never have this offered engagement. Along those same lines... You nag at the dog when you start to lose the engagement because this manufactured or fake engagement that is actually just being pushed from the reinforcers isn't very robust. It's really weak. And so as soon as the dog's not actively in reinforcement acquisition, you lose it. They check out. And the second they check out, what do you do? You nag at them to come back. And all of this is you trying to compete with the environment. Chronically training your dog in spaces where he cannot offer you engagement because the environment is too overwhelming is another way that you wreck this for yourself. Okay, so how do we actually build it? How do we get it to happen? First of all, we're gonna build our games, our training stuff, in easier spaces so that we aren't competing with the environment. We're gonna ask, where is it easy for this dog to engage with me? And then those are the places I'm gonna train in until I have built up systems of reinforcement that I can then take into those harder environments. That's how you're gonna avoid competing with the environment and nagging at your dog. You're going to wait, you're not going to prompt. You're gonna have food on you, toys on you, whatever. You're gonna enter a space with the dog. Dog's probably gonna be on leash at first and you're gonna wait. And when the dog looks to you and asks, hey, what are we doing here? You're going to immediately start the game. Do not, you know, freak out and start waving stuff around and waving food around the second they do it. Like don't start prompting the engagement once they offer it. Wait for them to offer it and then start engaging in the training game that you want to play. Recognize how much your dog can give you in any given time and don't go longer than that. So if you've got a puppy and they've only got about a minute of brain space, use that minute and then make sure you're giving them a break to decompress, to check out the environment, to whatever, before you start to ask them to train again. Have good ideas. This is a hard one and a big one, because you probably think all your ideas are good. Your dog needs to agree with you. They need to think your ideas are good too. So if one of your ideas is that you're going to use kibble to shape something tough, like putting front feet on a bowl and pivoting around it, but you're in an environment where there's grass, which smells kind of good, and also maybe your puppy is five months old and that behavior is tough for them, That might not, those might not be good ideas. Your puppy might think, man, pivoting around the bowl when there's grass to be had, like what kind, that's such a dumb idea. When your ideas are not naturally fun for dogs, you got to make sure that your dog is already hip to this game, that the dog already wants to do the stuff, already trusts that you have good ideas. That's why a lot of my work with puppies is manufacturing environments in which they're going to do normal puppy stuff, but they're going to learn what I want them to learn by doing normal puppy stuff. In order to promptly begin reinforcing any kind of signal that I am relevant, which is how I'm going to build engagement... I need to be highly engaged myself. I can't be checking my phone, looking at my watch, waiting for the puppy to check in. I can't be watching that bird that's flying ahead. I need to be very, very engaged in this process, ready to jump in and start reinforcing the second my dog checks in. And finally, I'm gonna allow this skill, this skill of offered engagement to grow the way that grass grows, which is to mean that, It's slow, but it's steady and it's sure. Grass will grow no matter what you do, but you're never going to see it growing. So these are grass growing types of skills. A lot of skills you're going to teach are grass growing types of skills. And those skills are the ones that you will not necessarily see growth in session to session, but you will see over time. It's also gonna come in and out as your dog's hormones come in and out. If you're raising a puppy, it's probably gonna be quite easy to engage them very young and then it's going to, you're gonna lose some of that natural engagement and then it will come back around as long as you keep working and keep having those good ideas. And I think a final point that's important to discuss is the way to offer the dog acclimation to the space without wrecking your offered engagement. This is a common problem. This is something I'm seeing a lot of. And the reason is the advice says allow the dog to acclimate. And the advice also says build engagement. And then the advice doesn't tell you how to bring those things together. So first of all, recognize the type of dog that you have and recognize the environment that you're in. A dog does not need to acclimate to the environment for a long time. They don't need to zigzag and sniff and explore and sniff every single blade of grass and observe every single dog in the space, etc. They don't actually need to do that to acclimate. Acclimation is simply you've seen it, you've, you've assessed that the space is safe, and you are now ready to engage with me. Plenty of dogs are going to be very content to just sniff the rest of their life and they're never gonna offer engagement to you if sniffing is on the table. If you're allowing the dog to just self entertain on the environment and you're calling that acclamation, you will fail to build the engagement, the offered engagement that you would like. For dogs that are extremely environmental, I like to allow them to acclimate from a crate or a station, so I just put them there. And when they offer me sustained eye contact, they're offering engagement, I'll release them from the station and ask them if they'd like to work. They need to know that they can offer engagement to get reinforcement to happen before that's something they can do, which is why it needs to be trained in environments where you do not need to allow them to acclimate at all because they're quite familiar with it. And if your dog is offering you engagement during the acclimation process, believe them and go ahead and get into work. If they change their mind and they go back to acclimating because something bothers them, that's a good time for you to just give them a quick break before asking them if they'd like to engage again and how that might look is that you go put them in a crate where they can just kind of observe the environment and then let them out in a little bit of time or you put them on a station or maybe you put them in the back of your car and they can watch the environment for a second before you ask them if they'd like to work again. So I hope that this was helpful and I hope that this will help you to shape that offered engagement that you are after. And please engage on social media or in Patreon if I didn't answer your questions or if I produced more questions for you. Okay, and I've got a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Jess who writes, Signed up for a working spot at the FDSA camp in October with my three-year-old Silken Windhound Liv. Our sport is agility. Half of our working spots are with Megan Foster. We do have a bailout plan in place for Liv if it's not working, but I would rather set up for success. I've never done a conference before, so I'm not sure where to start. Liv is not particularly environmentally sensitive, but she is handler pressure and error sensitive, and she's a sighthound. I have been working hard at not communicating error, doing really short loopy sessions, and looking for latency. Things are getting better, but I know we are not as ready for a conference environment as I'd like to be. What would you advise we work on to prepare for the conference? So Jess... Most of your question feels like it pertains mostly to kind of the working time that you will have with Liv. I will say that, especially when you're working with Megan, Megan will take care of you and your dog and your dog will not struggle in Megan's session. Megan won't allow that. So don't worry about that. And I would like to say that's going to be true for the other instructors there as well. Take the way that Megan handles your session and and kind of apply what she does to your other sessions. And I think you're going to be fine. Like, I think while working your dog will be the most fine that you'll be. Making sure that the puppy or the young dog can crate, a three-year-old dog can crate in between sessions is probably a bigger deal. So make sure that you have options for settling in the crate and make sure that you remove yourself and the dog from the scenario anytime something is hard it just shouldn't feel overly hard and take a lot of breaks and have a good time next one comes from erica erica writes i have a 15 week old golden retriever puppy who has a serious bitey problem I listened to your episode about puppy biting where you said redirection doesn't work because it rewards the behavior and to instead focus on prevention, but how do I do that if my puppy is almost always trying to bite me? Usually when she feels bitey, she will not accept a toy and would rather bite me, whether I move the toy around wildly or hold it more still. She will typically accept a treat scatter, but I would run out of her daily allotment for kibbles by mid-morning if I did a scatter every time I thought she might bite me because again, it is almost all the time. She does not stop biting if I ignore her, if I walk away, and we are dealing with a bit of separation anxiety as well, so putting myself behind a barrier doesn't really work either. She gets tons of enrichment, shoes, exercise, training time, playtime, and plenty of naps, so I don't think it's a problem of understimulation or overtiredness. She's teething, but independently from that, she seems to get genuine joy from lunging and snapping at me, even if she does not make contact with my skin or clothes. How do I get her to stop and how do I build a healthy play relationship with a puppy who only craves flesh? And Erica added an edit, which says people keep telling me I need to let her play with adult dogs or puppies to teach her bite inhibition. Believe me, I've tried. She never bites other dogs, only humans, and mostly only when she is at home. First of all, Erica, you're correct. That is bad advice, bite inhibition thing. And in fact, I think I will record an episode on that on a later date. To help you with your puppy, understand a couple of things. Number one, some puppies are hideously bitey and it sounds like you have one. So first of all, this probably isn't really you doing stuff wrong. This is a lot about just who your puppy is and it will get better if you don't make a big issue out of it. My biggest concern with what you wrote is that you believe you're dealing with separation anxiety. That would be the first thing to dive into, not the biting, even though the biting feels more acutely problematic because this puppy needs to spend more time in an X-Pen self-entertaining. My 16 week old puppy is in an X-pen right now in the room with me. She's got toys in there, she's got chewed bones in there and that's where she is unless I'm actively working with her. And yes, that actively working with her would involve me feeding her a lot of food to keep her from biting if she were a bad biter. I think this comes down to the way that I manage puppies versus the way that maybe a, a normal person manages puppies. They're in a pen or they're being worked or they're on a decompression walk. And those are pretty much their modes of existence. That is what I would recommend. You posted this question a little while ago. And so if you are still struggling, I really hope you'll come join us in the membership where we're doing a lot of conversation about puppies right now. And I think you can get some real help, but know that it's not about how you respond in the moment. Ignoring it is really what's best, and I know it hurts, so I know that's really crappy advice. It is about prevention, and the prevention is organizing the puppy's life a little bit differently. So if the puppy can't be separate from you, can't be in a pen, that's the first thing to dive in on. Milena Demartini's website has self-study courses for owners, and there is other information available out there. So that is where I would focus first. Next one comes from Elise. Elise writes, would you recommend trying out anxiety or nausea meds or another solution for a dog who doesn't avoid car rides, but seems somewhat stressed during them? My dog will happily jump into the car, but while we are driving, he seems stressed. For him, this looks like fast breathing, heavy panting, salivating. These symptoms are all relatively mild, no vomiting or huge freakouts, but he's clearly not having a great time. I take him in the car pretty much every day to go on decompression walks and to agility class. Does this sort of car stress, low level but consistent, warrant some sort of intervention? So Elise, I'm not sure, but you could certainly try and see what it does for you. I don't think there's harm in that. If you have a good relationship with your veterinarian where you can try both of those things, not at the same time, so maybe whatever anxiety med your your vet thinks on one date and then whatever nausea meds your vet thinks on another date, I would encourage you to do so and just kind of see. And I wouldn't only look at his behavior in the car. I would also look at his behavior on the walk or in agility class and see what effects the meds are having. It might be that it's perfectly fine and you're an overly worried mama and you wouldn't be alone in that. Next one comes from Mabry. Mabry writes, I'm bringing home a new puppy soon and I'm kind of worried about introducing alone time. It is something I value and I know my pup will need the skill later, but it feels like I can only do it in a way that goes zero to a hundred. I also worry that if I give her a chew and then leave it, it could be poisoned or that if I walk in and out while occasionally dropping treats, she could anticipate my coming back slash never actually settle. I'm hoping to get Happier Crating soon, so that might help as well. Thank you, and thanks for the podcast. Mabry tagged along that she's wondering about finding off-leash hiking areas not frequented by dogs. So, first question. Happy Crating and Happier Crating, the two programs that I sell as a bundle are where I would begin and they outline it for you so they outline how to introduce alone time the zero to a hundred problem is a problem so if you're a normal person who has kind of a nine to five has to leave the puppy a lot at first I would be getting help from others so that the puppy is not having to be alone for long long periods of time right out the gate a few hours broken up by maybe a lunch break and then also a friend coming over in the afternoon that's going to be okay. It's not ideal. And I would not have the puppy in a crate during that time. I would have a big X-pen set up that has a crate in it. That's got a nice bed inside with probably a potty area, depending on how long you need to leave the puppy. And if you are still struggling, like I told the last questioner, we are talking puppies over in the membership. So please join us. As far as hiking areas, you mentioned you're in Western Washington, check out logging roads. That's the pro tip. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.